0: So here's what I want to do, if, if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 4, that's where we're going to be. We've been looking at this letter that John wrote at the, near the end of the first century and the, uh, at the end of the first generation of believers, into the second generation and third generation of believers, and he's writing to a church, a church much like this church. And he's wanting to encourage them. He wants them to be sure of their salvation. He wants them to be assured of their eternal life. And he does that in the face of a lot of competing messages that these believers were hearing in that day. And this morning, what we're going to get to see is we're going to get to see, I think, one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible as it unfolds for us. So, If you've got your Bibles, here it is, 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to begin in verse 7. I'm going to read a few verses, and then we'll we'll, um, talk about them, and then we'll, we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. Here's what John says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you'd help us this morning to, by your Spirit, the words on our page or on our screens, Father, would be alive in our hearts and our minds. Would you help us to understand what it is that you've written, Father, would you apply that into a heart? Would you bury it deep into our lives? And Father, this morning, would we not come away unchanged by your holy word? We ask this the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, I don't know if you remember, in in the year 2000, there was a movie that came out called Pay It Forward. Eugene Simonette was played by Kevin Spacey. And the way the movie opens up, he's a social studies teacher, and he does not expect this year's seventh grade class to be any different from last year's seventh grade class. And he opens it up by making the same speech to the class Uh, that he's made every single year hoping but not quite expecting that one of his students would take it to heart. A a man who, when you, you see him visibly, his physical scars inform a much deeper emotional set of scars that he carries. He is, however, a passionate teacher And he hopes, he transfers his hope to his students because in all truth, you find out he doesn't really have any hope for himself. And emotionally, he's completely shut down. So he gives this assignment at the beginning of the school year, and he's done it for the past 12 years, and the assignment is to think of a way to change the world and put it into action. He hopes, but he doesn't anticipate that that his students will take it seriously. But one young student, Taylor McKinney, played by Haley Joe Osment, who incidentally also sees dead people. Um, maybe that's a different movie. I don't know. Anyways, he he takes the assignment to heart and. and So, Trevor, he takes the assignment seriously, and the truth is he does it because his life is so troubled. His father's gone, his mother's an alcoholic, and he's had to grow up too soon, and he needs some hope in his life, and it turns out that he gets that hope from Eugene. And Trevor's idea is is to pay it forward, It's to do something for somebody that they can't do for themselves. And he says, listen, you, you... you have to do that three times, and then the people you help each do it three times, and then it gets bigger, and it goes from three to nine to 27, and on and on and on. Start it with a simple message. Think of an idea to change the world and put it into action. Well, in many ways, what John is writing about is that very thing. It's about God's idea to change the world and how God put that into action. And then turns around and says, this will continue to change the world. You put this into action. And that's what he's telling us. But look at what he says, again, if you were with me in, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You know, if we were to talk about the love chapter in the Bible, most of us would say, oh, 1 Corinthians 13, it was read at my wedding, or, you know, I mean, I've read it at a, at a bunch of weddings. Love is patient and kind, and it doesn't envy or boast, and it's not arrogant or rude, and doesn't insist on its own way, and on and on, and then it finally says, Love never fails. You know, First Corinthians 13, it's a beautiful chapter. At the same time, the case can be made First John 4. First John 4 is the true love chapter in the Bible. 27 times in these verses from verse 7 to verse 21, John's going to use some form of agape. Nothing else in the Bible comes close. And when he says in verses 7 and 8, he says, let us love one another. What he means by the way that he says it is that this is something. So love one another. And this is something that is now possible and that we are now able to do that we weren't able to do before. And the reason is, he gives three reasons. One, because the love, because love or the love is from God. Love comes from God. And then he says, all the ones, everybody Who loves? They've been born again. They've been begotten from God. And then he says, All the ones who love, they're ones who know God. I might say it this way, I might put it in this term. Love is not a recessive gene, it's a dominant gene spiritually. And I'm talking about our spiritual DNA. So, just think about it this way a gene, it's a part of an organism, uh, DNA that's passed down from parents and codes for a specific function. I looked all this up this week. An allele is, is, um, is it, it's, it's from a gene, and, and it can be dominant or it can be recessive. And every gene has two sets of alleles one you get from your mother, one you get from your father. Now, here's how it works. A dominant trait will always be expressed in the offspring if the dominant allele is present, even if there's only one copy of it. Let me illustrate it for you. If you're sitting there, right right now you can do this, all right? You just need both your hands free. Take your hands in a relaxed way and interlock your fingers and just hold them in front of you. All right, everybody doing this? Left thumb over right thumb. That results in one or two of the copies of a dominant version of the gene. If you're sitting there this morning, and your right thumb, in a relaxed position, sits on top of your left thumb, you have two recessive genes... Place that right thumb over the left thumb, anybody willing to to say hey i'm I'm the weird one in here okay, got three or four of you all right so I'm sorry about the rest of this illustration, okay your natural relaxed state think about it this way that's what's natural for you T- to reverse that you we can all do that it just feels unnatural there is a natural way in which that lands for all of us now think about it this way when we were created we were created in the image of god we had the image of god dna sin comes in and it it breaks that dna it skews it 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 makes it upside down and what was dominant became recessive for us and we were born into a line of original sin a line of recessive genes and then we come into the world and then we pair that with the world with the the recessive genes of the world and we begin to look like the world because that's who we are when we're born and yet what the bible says is that when you're born again from god You're born again, you're united with Christ. We get a whole new set of genes, a whole new set of things become dominant in our life. We begin to look like Christ. The very best we could do on our own in this world, apart from God breaking into the world, was too recessive, skewed, imperfect finite, self-centered genes called love. And yet what God does is He comes and He breaks through into our world and into our lives. And the way John says it in John 3 and the way John says it here in 1 John 4 is that we are born again. And now all that Christ is, we are. And that becomes dominant in our life. So now you're where you were a left thumb or right thumb over left, now you're a left thumb over right. Oh listen, you still know how to do this. You did this for years. But that's not who you are anymore. That's not what's natural to you anymore. This is what he's saying. God is love. And we are His. We are born from Him. Now what He's going to do is in verses 9 and 10 He's going to show us this incredible thing. He said, okay, um, all right, God's invisible and no one's ever seen God. He told us that in, in John chapter 1 in the gospel. No one's ever seen God. But God is going to make His love known to us. He, he's going to manifest it to us. He's going to reveal it to us. He's going to take his love and make it tangible so that we can see it. And this is what he says in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It was made visible among us. the, the, The love of the invisible God became tangible, and we were able to see it with our eyes. And it's this, that God sent His only Son, His one and only Son, into the world, so that we might live through Him. When John says that, that we might live through Him, what he's talking about is this living. This is eternal life. It's eternal life, and it's more than just living forever in a place that's not hell. It's the forever eternal God living in us and us in him, and it is fellowship with God forever. What he's saying is, listen, he sent his son into the world. Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. Now, listen, John doesn't stop there. Look at what he does in verse 10. In this is love. You know, it's interesting. I say all the time if you were to pick a fifth grader on the street, you know, anywhere in the Western world, and you say, finish this sentence for me, God is, and 99.9% of those fifth graders would say, love. God is love. And the problem is we begin to import into that love all the things that we think about love. You know? Look, I love Star Trek, and I love my dog, and I love little Debbie snack cakes. and I mean, whatever it is that you love, we begin to import that in. And and yet, what God does is He's not going to let us define love. He's the one that's going to define love. And in verse 10, he defines it this way. If you want to know what love is, you want to know what the love of God is, in this is love. This is what he says. He says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, if you have the NIV, it says atoning sacrifice, and that's a great way to say it. He became the sacrifice. He sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Don't let this pass you by. What God says, if you want to know what my love is, if if God is love, and you want to know what that love is, what he's saying is you look to the cross. That is love. Jesus hanging there. The one who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The great thing about that old word propitiation, it means more than just Christ died for our sins. It also means that he endured the penalty for our sins. He endured the wrath of God so that we don't have to. So Jesus will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he endures, he drinks the cup of the wrath of God. And God says, you want to know what love is? Don't look anywhere else. That's where you start. That's love. Then in verse 11, to me, it's one of the most surprising verses in all of Scripture. Look at how it says. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we expect the text. You know what we expect the text to say? If God so loved us, then we ought to love Him back. That's what we expect it to say. It's not that it doesn't mean that. I think it absolutely means that, but that's not the way John says it beloved, those who are loved, if God so loved us, and He does, oh, He does more than you can possibly fathom, then we also ought to love one another. When we love one another, what John is going to say in verse 12 is that the invisible God becomes visible in our love for one another? No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The The invisible God becomes visible in the midst of our love. The intangible God is now tangible in our love for one another. How do people know who God is in the world today? The very same way Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Not your church membership, not your baptism, not how big your study Bible is. Not by the music you listen to necessarily but by your love for one another. The love of God is brought to its intended purpose when we love one another. Dwight Moody tells a story, and it's a at the time Moody was already famous in the world. He's a contemporary of Spurgeon, and he'd already started Moody Bible Institute. And, He would travel all over the world and he would speak. And he tells about this time he went to Dublin and um, was preaching at a conference there in, in Dublin. And he starts the story this way. He says, I'll tell you how I got my eyes opened to the truth that God loves the sinner. And then he begins to tell the story went to Dublin to preach a conference, and after one of the nights of the conference, a young man, really a kid, he was not more than 17 years old, meets him at the bottom of the platform, runs up to him, said, Mr. Moody, here, uh, you, uh, th- th- this is what I want to do. I, I want to come to America, and I want to preach. When are you headed back to America? I'll travel with you. So, Moody uh tells the kid, I, I don't exactly know when I'm going back. And he didn't, but he also says, if I did, I probably would have told him, I don't know when I'm going back. And he got away from him as quickly as possible. Well, Moody says, hey, he sailed back to America, got back to Chicago, and within a week he had a letter from this young guy. And, he, and, the, and the guy had written him a letter, this little kid written him a letter, and said, hey, I'm in, I'm in New York, and I'm wanting to come to Chicago. Uh, when do you want me to preach? So Moody wrote him back, was cordial, but kind of gave him the Heisman, and you know, thought that that would be the end of it. Well, it wasn't. The kid showed up, essentially at his door, and he didn't know what to do with him. He was about to head off to Iowa for a series of conferences. There were some midweek meetings already planned there in Chicago. At the church, and so he went to a friend. He said, "Hey, listen, I got this kid. I don't know what to do with him. We've got these meetings. Will you let him uh, speak at, at the at the first meeting of the of the week? And then if he's terrible, you know, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it when I get back." Well, so he does. One night, then he, then the second night, then the third night, and so on, and and. These midweek meetings are you know, the kind of thing you know, not very many people showed up to, but the crowd kept growing every night. So Moody says he came back on Saturday, walked in, did a few things, and asked his wife offhand, hey, how did the kid do when he preached at the meeting? And, and she said, uh, oh, he, he did very well. So, well, do people like him? Oh, they, they like him very much. He, he preaches different than you. He preaches that God loves sinners. So Moody writes this. He said, I've been preaching that God hated sinners. And That he'd been standing behind the sinners with a double-edged sword ready to cut off the heads of the sinners. So I concluded, if he preached different from me, I would not like him. My prejudice was up. So at Saturday night, he goes to the meeting and he says this. Well, I went down to the meeting that night. And I saw them coming in with their Bibles with them. And I thought it was curious. It was something strange to see the people coming in with the Bibles and listening to the flutter of the leaves. And the man gave out the text. Let us turn to the third chapter of John in the 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't divide up the text at all. He went from Genesis to Revelation. Revelation giving proof that God loved the sinner. And before he got got through, two or three of my sermons were ruined. we have never preached them since. He goes on and talks about the following Sunday, it was the same passage, for God so loved the world. And then he preached the fourth sermon on Monday night, and he seemed to take the whole text and throw it at him to prove that God loved the sinner. And for 6,000 years, he's been trying to convince the world of this. And I thought, I've never heard a better sermon in my life. Monday night, same text. Tuesday night, same text. Wednesday night, again, same text. On Thursday, he selected the same old text. He said, I've been trying to tell you night after night how much God loves you. But I can't do it if I could climb up to heaven and see Gabriel there and ask him, how much does God love me? He would only say, God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. Moody says this, he says, I'll, I'll never forget it. It was when the love of God broke my heart. He said, I've known about God's love a long time. This is when God broke my heart. The Bible is simply God's love story, the story of the love of a holy God to a sinful world. It's the most amazing thing in the Bible. People tell us the Bible's full of things it's impossible to believe, and I know nothing else so impossible to believe than that a holy God should love a sinful world And should love individuals such as you and me? The Bible says that he does. Impossible as it is to believe, it is true. There's a mighty power in that one sentence. Power to break the hardest heart, power to reach individual men and women who were sunk so down low in their sin to lift them up, and make them fit for a place beside the Lord Jesus Christ upon his throne. Do you know that love? Do you know it? Has it broken your heart? Have you looked into how God has revealed love? Have you looked to the cross? Have you gazed there? And found your heart broken by it. Well, that's how love works. And listen, you can't fully understand love by just studying it. I mean, it's like tennis. I mean, you can't fully understand tennis by reading about it or watching a YouTube video. You can only fully understand tennis by playing it, by practicing it. So how do we do that? Well, he tells us in verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Christ, Jesus, is the unparalleled example of, of this selfless, agape love. The image of what it means that God's love is Perfect in the world. And so it's natural for us to throw up our hands. Well, if that's it, how can we ever do that? Nobody can ever love like Christ loved. And I'd say, well, then you're catching on. It's just, it's just where we need to be brought to. The attitude of surrender that John will speak into. Listen, by this we know we abide in him and he abides in us and, and we abide in love and, and God abides in us and that love's throwing, flowing through us and it's because he has given us his spirit. The Holy Spirit enlightens our minds to understand the gospel more and more and more and opens our hearts and, and empowers our wills to accept it. But the spirit doesn't stop there the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our life, He unites us to the life of God. powers us, enables us to be able to confess Jesus as the Son of God. In other words, what John's saying is we're not left up to our own, to, to live up to the love of God in our own strength. In fact, that's utterly impossible for us to do. We, we carry around with us the, the, the sinful flesh we came into the world with, our, our fallen condition, our sinful tendencies. We can't produce the kind of love that God manifests. However, the presence of the Spirit brings with it fruit. That fruit is love, one aspect of it. The Spirit, He abides in every believer, and He works in us to fulfill what God commands, to fulfill, to overflow. What God has shed abroad in our hearts, as Paul says in Romans 5, well, look at how he continues. In, in verse 17, he says this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Love's perfected. God's love perfected in us. And he will say, and he's already said in chapter 2, verse 5, by keeping his word, God's love is perfected in us here. By abiding in God and God abiding in us, when he's at home in our life, That love is perfected. And this leads to being able to look toward the day of judgment with confidence. And he says we can do that because even though in the midst of this sinful world, because as he is, so also we are in this world. In this world with all its temptations and all of our struggles with those temptations we do not belong to the world. We stand in the same relationship to God as Jesus did to the Father, as Jesus lived out His life by His Holy Spirit. In other words, we stand in the presence of God as we will be, even as we are in the process of becoming who we will be another way to put it. God does not only see us as we are right now. He sees through the lens of His Son Jesus and through the lens of the works of Jesus, not ours. In Christ our sins, it's not the end of the story. One day we will be perfected and what we were created to be and will be with him. And God sees this and he knows this already. And he sees us as we will become one day. And that doesn't come about by our own efforts. That's Christ in us. It's his spirit empowering us. And so he says, hey, listen, it, this love, it casts out fear. You, you can know this, and, and, and fear can be cast out. You know what I mean? Fear is the, the same word. It's the Greek word phobia. You know, what are you afraid of? Arachnophobia, afraid of spiders. Hydrophobia, afraid of water. Acrophobia, afraid of heights. And they're spiritual phobias people carry around. Some people fear because of their past. For some, in here this morning, your present, your right now brings worry to you. For others, it may be the future that feels like the threat. You you remember uh, Charlie Brown Christmas special that's now been bought, I guess, by corporate media, and you have to pay to watch it, what should have been free to the world forever, that. And Charlie Brown there, and he consults with Lucy, who's, you know, got counselor written out on the little kiosk there, and goes to her about her fears, and rattling off all these phobias, you know, Charlie Brown says, I, uh, she, she's rattling off, and he says, I, I don't think that's quite it. And Lucy says, well, maybe you have pantophobia. Remember this? Charlie Brown says, well, what's panophobia? And she says, fear of everything. Perfect love casts out fear. There's one fear that all who are without Christ should have and all who know Christ should never have. That's the fear of judgment. We who are Christians have no fear of judgment. Because when you love God, and you know you're loved by God. You're not afraid of the future. God's perfect love casts out your fear. And the reason is because of what he said in verse 10. He sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the one that would endure your judgment. And so you don't have to fear judgment. Now listen, we rightfully and reverently and in awe want to fear God in that way. But we don't have to be afraid to stand before God. Because everything there is about us, and everything there will be about us was already said two thousand years ago, was already put on Christ. And he declared, it is finished. Perfect love casts out fear. Notice in verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. Fear is not the motivator for obedience. Love is, love motivates. A A loving confidence that comes, love casts out fear, it brings confidence Becomes a loving concern for others. We love because He first loved us. Martin Luther said, God does not love because of our works, He loves because of His love. Your love for Jesus, your love for God, it doesn't initiate with you, it doesn't originate. With you. That began, it actually it began before the foundations of time, showed up in history in Bethlehem, culminated at Calvary, and then the resurrection. And the only reason you have the capacity to love is because you've been a recipient of God's love. You've been born again, if you are. You now have that gene. You now you now possess that trait that comes from God and he teaches you and then that's the trigger for your love for him and you could never love a God apart from him loving you first and God uses his own love to compel us to obedience, to compel us to love. And that's why we've always got to be renewing our minds. We've always got to be reminding ourselves of the gospel. We've We've got to be people who spend time in the Word of God. Empowered and illuminated by the Spirit of God. Drawn to the love of the Son of God. Because in our frailty, we so easily forget. Well, here's a question for you. Which is easier, to love God or to love people? Well, I can tell you I think it's to love God. I mean, I'm a people, I understand. People are hard to love. I mean, it's easier to love God, or at least we think. It's easier to love God, than, and it's harder to love People, and, and one of the reasons is God's perfect, and He loves me, and people are imperfect and don't always love me. On top of that, some of them are just rotten. And, and, and yet John goes a different way. John will say, you know what, it's harder to love God than people. People are visible, God's not. Look at what he says, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He doesn't love God. That's what he means. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you don't love people, you're not loving God because God says this. One of the ways that you show your love for me is by visibly showing love for others. Jonathan Edwards said, love all men, love wicked men with a love of pity. Weep and pray for them and seek the good of their souls and also the good of their bodies. Be ready at all times to do or to suffer for their welfare, wishing and praying that they may have the same mercy that God has given to you. Well, in verse 21, he sums it all up, and he says, this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's the commandment. Jesus says, that's how the world will know you're my disciples. But Paul, he frames it this way, as as having the mind of of Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, Philippians chapter 2. Or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. L- looking not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. And then Paul goes on to describe in the most poetic way what it is that Jesus did for us that in hanging on the cross, his love for the Father and his love for you, they come together. That though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's because of that, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Max Lakato tells a story about a kid named Chad. He's shy, he's quiet, little kid came home one day and he told his mom that he'd like to make valentines for everyone in his class. Maybe you've read this. Well, the mom's heart sank. I wish She wouldn't do that, she thought. She'd watch the children as they walked home from school. Her Chad was always behind them. They all laughed and hung on to each other and hung out with each other and talked to each other, but Chad was never included. Nevertheless, she decided she was going to go along with her son. So she purchased the, the, the paper and the glue and got the scissors and crayons. And, and for three whole weeks, night after night, painstakingly, Chad makes 35 Valentines. It's Valentine's Day comes. Chad was. Beaming with excitement, carefully placed the Valentines in the bag, bolted out the door. The mom decides, Well, I'm going to bake cookies for him today (laughs) because there's no way he's not coming home disappointed from school. Hurt a mother's heart, thinking about all the Valentines he wasn't going to get. So that afternoon, she's got the cookies, she's got the milk on the table. Finally, she heard all the voices. She looks out the window, sees the children laughing, having their best time. As usual, Chad's there bringing up the rear, but he's walking a little faster than usual. She expected him to burst in the house with tears as soon as he got inside. His arms were empty, she noticed. When the door opened, she choked back tears. Honey, I have some warm cookies and milk for you. But he hardly heard her words. He marched right by, his face glowing. All he could say was, Not a one, not a one. The mother's heart sank. Then he added, I didn't forget one. Not sing not one single person did I forget. He said, I don't know where you are this morning. You may have drug in here and thought, this is the last place I want to be and I have no idea why I'm here. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I'm sitting with. You don't know the future that I'm looking, staring down the the road at. And I just say to you this morning, you're here to hear, God loves you. He loves you. There's nothing in your past or your presence, present or your future that can keep you from the radical love of God. Well, since that movie was released 10 years ago, 20 years ago, There were a bunch of attempts made. You hear about them every now and then across America. People want to have this pay it forward movement. The problem is those don't have any power, not any divine power anyway. I mean, sometimes you go through the line at Starbucks and somebody in front of you has paid for your drink. Now you feel that awkward obligation to pay for the person behind you, but they had four drinks and all you were getting was one and Verse 13 tells us the key to the power is His Spirit. We've been given His Spirit so that we abide and we know we can abide. The reviews from the movie were interesting. I looked them up. What critics said about the movie? Here's what one guy said. These are all the big critics. The, I mean, the movie was panned, you know, by the critics the golden rule karma good samaritanism whatever you call it there's no arguing that philanthropy and goodwill are positive effective things yes i wish there was more of it in the world and i was hoping for an effective movie that might inspire some another critic soon the whole world will be populated by do-gooders all working toward the end of worry this all sounds a little too contrived and striving to be uplifting well it is manipulative, sappy, oppressive. They should have titled it, What Would Jesus Do? Another one. As it stands now, pay it forward, winds up making a good case for never going out of your way to help anybody. What about the reviews we should expect from the world if we try to pay forward the love of God? 1 John 3, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, you would love the world as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. John 17, Jesus prays, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world anymore any more than I am of the world. Bethel, my prayer for us is that we would attract the criticism that goes hand in hand with the fulfillment of the obedience of Christ to love one another. And that through that yieldedness, it could only come from the Spirit and the, the example and the influence and the effect of our lives lived out of the wellspring of God's love for us. To what John's saying is that we, we would make the invisible God visible. We would make the intangible love of God tangible. Tangible. I'm going to pray that God would do that in us, if you would bow with me. Father, I pray you would do it only you can do. And that is that by your Spirit, you would take your word and you would continue to transform us. That we would no longer live these recessive lives, but we would live out this dominant DNA that comes from being born of you, Father, we'd know your love, we'd gaze at it, we'd meditate on it, we'd have our hearts broken by it. And then, Father, in turn, we would love you by selflessly and sacrificially loving others in ways they can't love themselves. Loving others in ways that expect nothing in return. The loving others in the way that it flows out of this wellspring of love that you have poured out into our hearts. And so, Father, I ask that you do that. I ask that you do that this morning. If, there's, if there are things that need to be settled this morning, Father, I pray by your Spirit, you work in the heart and mind and conscience to make sure that gets worked out. And Father, we'd be known by our love from one, for one another. And that'd be a fire we'd set that would consume this community around us. We, we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit, amen.
1: Amen. Just one announcement before you go this morning. You may have seen this in the e-news or on the screens out in the foyer, but we are getting ready uh, to celebrate baptism on December the 6th. This is a really unique thing. We've never done this before, but it is a friends and family baptism we're doing on Sunday afternoon, December the 6th, uh, with also live stream for family members who can't be here or may want to socially distance. And so, wanted to make sure that you know that's coming. First of all, we'd love for you to watch the live stream when it happens, but also... Uh, if you or a family member um, have never been baptized and you know that's what the Lord's calling you to do, if you are interested in being a part of that service, we would love to get you signed up because next Sunday is our baptism training uh, where we kind of make sure everybody kind of understands what's happening. We talk about the, the whole procedure and how Sunday's going to go. And so if that's you and you're interested in that, you can text the word South Baptism to 903 437 4437. There'll be a form to fill out, somebody will call you, talk to you about it. Um, certainly, when Want you to be a part of that? We love baptisms around here, and we're looking forward to a great day on December the sixth. All right, let me have you stand this morning. I'm going to pray for us and dismiss us. Thank you for being a part of worship. We love y'all so thankful for you. Let me pray, God. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Pray that you would go with us now as we go out into the world. Help us to reflect you and your beauty and your power and your love to the world around us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed. We'll see y'all next week.